0: Hey everybody, welcome to Therapy for Humans, the podcast where if you're not careful, you might just pick up some tips on how to survive as a more or less psychologically intact human in the modern world. My name is Rowan, and I'll be your host. Hey y'all, we made it to episode 25. Is that a milestone of some sort? I don't know, no idea, but it is episode 25, so welcome back. So today I want to talk about a dynamic that I see a lot in a couple sessions. So here's a setup. And I'm talking about hetero couples here generally, not that this dynamic can't happen and does happen with some same-sex couples, but you'll see what I mean in a second. So both partners are working, they have kids, neither partner brings in significantly more money than the other, but somehow the wife is expected to carry the vast majority of the household and child rearing duties in addition to her full-time job. It's pretty shocking to me that in this day and age, we still see so much of this. And I'm not talking about conservative, misogynist, uneducated, asshole, ignorant guys here. I'm talking about men and women both who immediately see the problem with this dynamic as soon as it's pointed out, but didn't question it until that moment. Usually that moment is when I point it out. And (laughs) anyway, so that's how ingrained it is. It's like this weird stealth sexism thing. It's not plainly said that the wife gets to have her career as long as it doesn't interfere with the household duties, but that's essentially what's happening. That's kind of the message. So I get these couples coming in and the wife has been working and it's hard to keep up with the kids and the cleaning and the meal preparation. And they come into my office and they sit down and tell me about these points of stress. And I ask if one of them makes significantly more money. And the answer is no. And I ask if the household chores and child rearing are being equally shared and The majority of the time, I mean, usually they start out by saying, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, we both do whatever. But then we start actually picking that apart. And generally it's skewed heavily towards the female partner carrying most of these duties. And the husband will usually jump in and state, oh, you know, like I make breakfast twice a week or I pick up the kids on Friday. And like, that's great. Good for him. But it's about 25% usually of what his wife is somehow accomplishing while still working an equal number of hours at her job. And sometimes he wants a trophy for this. I don't know why. And just as a side note here for any of my couples that are listening, (laughs) if I haven't specifically called this out to you, I'm not talking about you. So don't be paranoid. I'm pretty blunt about this when I see it in session. So I just don't want anybody out there to think that I'm talking about them if I'm not talking about them. Okay. So I suppose we could take this like way the fuck back in time if you want to. Like let's look at hunters and gatherers 50,000 years ago. Traditionally, men hunted women gathered, the men would bring home big game while the women would tend home fires, raise the children, gather food closer to home. So here's what you might've missed in your anthropology 101 class because you were nursing a hangover or trying to figure out how to get in your classmates' pants. The women were working constantly and they hunted small game a lot of the time too. So they brought home the majority of the food that everybody ate, including meat protein. The guys would often be gone for long periods of time and or come home empty-handed, and they had a lot more downtime. When they did come home with a big dead beastie to eat, they were celebrated as heroes, while the women quietly kept everyone alive every fucking day, and they were simply taken for granted. Okay, so fast forward several thousand years, and it's 1950 in America, and a lot of women start thinking that it might be nice to do something other than cook and clean and raise the kids, so they start educating themselves and looking for work outside the home. And this was all well and good in general, as long as it didn't interfere with their primary duties as housewives. And here we are, staring down the barrel of 2020, and this insidious concept is still wriggling around in our poor little monkey brains. And it's so deep in there that even woke men, as the youngsters are saying now, can't see it until it's laid out in front of them. And perhaps even more disturbing is that the women aren't seeing it either. That's in some ways the piece that kind of worries me a little more than anything else, to be honest. And let me be clear, I'm not blaming anyone. I'm just calling out the dynamic. And most of the time, the guys in this scenario will admit that it's not right. And they will, with varying degrees of grumbling, work towards bringing things into an equal alignment. Sometimes I think the women in these situations, if they do notice this dynamic, don't think the fight over the shifting of that dynamic will be worth the end result. I don't know. In most cases, I think they're probably wrong about that because it's not just about who's picking up the kids on Tuesday or who's making most of the lunches. It bleeds into a subtle power differential that results in the female partner minimizing herself in a hundred small ways, which eventually will start to breed the kind of deep resentment that can derail a relationship. So I invite you to take an honest look at your division of labor and ask hard questions about how it's divided. I think it's worth the effort. Moving on. Let's talk about apologies. This is another one of those things in our culture that has become just, I think, a bit odd. Someone does something that necessitates them apologizing, and then suddenly it's back on the one who was wronged. The socially acceptable response to an apology is to minimize the harm done. Oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's fine. I challenge you to not do this next time someone apologizes for something. It's really fucking hard to just let them hang there with their apology and not make it all better for them. Now, the other side of this is that people, and this is especially true for women in our culture, apologize when it's not necessary. Almost every time I'm in the grocery store, which tends to be about every day, I come around a corner and a woman apologizes to me if we end up too close to one another. i have been her way, she's in mine, those are blind corners, but she apologizes every time. Sometimes I apologize too, and it does depend on who came around the corner first and how fast, but I think you all know what I'm talking about. This is probably actually a whole other discussion why women apologize more, especially when it's not necessary. So let's table that. Let's get back to the original topic, which is when someone does apologize, do we automatically tell them that it's fine? Yes, most of the time we do. And some of the time it's okay because the thing probably isn't a big deal. But what if it was a big deal? What if you're not ready to let it go? Or what if you need something further from them? The other fucked up thing about apologies in our culture is that often the person apologizing, the apologizer, let's say, can get offended when the apologizee doesn't give the the impression that it's all okay. Well, I said, I'm sorry, what more do you want from me? Maybe this comes back, at least in part, to how most of us were raised. Two kids get into a problem of some sort, the parents step in, maybe make one apologize, the other one has to accept the apology, and then they move on. It's like saying, I'm sorry, are these magical words that erase your wrongdoing. Sounds kind of like the Catholic Church a little bit, but anyway. So how would it be if we were able to accept the apology from someone, but then let them know in some kind of an authentic way if we were really ready to have the issue be done with, or if we needed something else, more time, more accountability from them, or just something beyond these magical words? Accepting an apology doesn't necessarily mean that it's done. It means that you are hearing from them, that they have some awareness, that what they did was harmful to you in some way. And you can accept that and even appreciate it, but you do get to decide if that's all you need or not. And I know that I'm being intentionally a bit vague about what kinds of things we're talking about here. There's a pretty broad range of things that someone might apologize for, from, I don't know, stepping on your toe on the dance floor to grabbing your crotch without your consent on the way home from the dance so those two things would likely necessitate very different levels of response to those magical words, I'm sorry. And they should, I guess. My whole rambling point here is that I'd like to see us move away from the idea that once those words are uttered, it's then on the person who has been wronged to accept and move on. And if you're not ready or willing to do that, then the wronged party can end up feeling at fault, or like they are, like need to somehow take care of the person who wronged them to begin with. I don't know. Maybe more and better use of our words is the key. Instead of just uttering the magic words, I'm sorry, like some disgruntled five-year-old, we could name what we perceive to be the issue and even guess at how that must have been for the other person to let them know that we actually get it. Name that the injured party must have felt hurt or scared or undermined or dismissed, disrespected, misunderstood, ignored, physically or emotionally harmed. There's lots of fucking choices. Let them know that you get it and then give them permission to take their time before responding. My God, am I suggesting that we actually take full and complete responsibility for our actions and how they might impact someone else? Holy shit. I think that's exactly what I'm saying. Imagine a world where that happens. Did we used to have more of that? I feel like we used to have more of that. Oh, well, maybe we can get back there. Maybe we can start today. Okay, last thing today, I probably mentioned that I facilitate a group for chefs and restaurant workers called In the Weeds, and we meet here in Durango every first and third Mondays at 2pm. You can find more info on our Facebook page, I think, if you just search for In the Weeds and Durango, you should be able to find it. Um, You can certainly get in touch with me if you can't find it. Anyway, we started up in the spring, and the group has been growing and gelling in just a really beautiful way. And... Again, I mean, these are kitchen guys, and I mean, they're mostly guys. We do have a few women who circle through, and I love it when they do. Um, but even the women, and actually, especially the women, they're used to this environment where showing your emotions is simply not an option. It doesn't feel safe. But man, they get into this group and they just let that wall down and really let each other in, and it's such a cool thing to watch unfold. I'm just always super proud of them at the end of the group, and. And what's starting to happen now is, you know, they're all kind of cluing into what's going on on kind of a deep level with each of them. So when they're at work and somebody's maybe, you know, just not as happy as they usually are or whatever, they're checking in with them. And, you know, in a really authentic way, like in the middle of dinner service sometimes. And, um, man, pretty cool changing the culture of the kitchen. Anyway, in our last group, we were talking about grief. There were a lot of people in the group struggling with the loss of loved ones. And one of the folks in the group said something that I found really profound. And we were talking about uh, loved ones with um, illness and terminal injury um, and, you know, what kinds of things maybe need to be said before they die. And this guy was talking about his own experience with a family member who had some serious health issues. And he said he needed to let them know that he was okay. And I thought this was important enough to share here and kind of elaborate on a little bit that sometimes we can get so focused on comforting the person who is dying that we forget that sometimes the most comforting thing that they can hear is that their loved ones are going to be okay when they're gone. Now, I'm not suggesting you lie to your terminally ill loved one and tell them that everything's going to be just peachy whether they're here or not, but especially when dealing with the death of a parent or a caregiver, reminding them that you're okay, that you will continue to be okay, that their deaths will be hard on you but will not derail you into some kind of horrible existence, this can be a profoundly comforting thing for them to hear. Okay, that's all I got this week. I'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me by email at rowan at therapyforhumanspodcast.com or you can leave a voicemail for me at one eight four four 844 durango That's one 387 2646 You can also see me live and in person for therapy, and you can get in touch with me for that through uh, durangopsychotherapy.com. You can email me at rowan at durangopsychotherapy.com, or you can even call or text to 970-903-3893. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other.